0: Welcome everybody to one of our ESMO podcasts. We're joined by Jonathan Rosenberg. Jonathan, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. I'm going to talk about um, a, an abstract with an FGFR um, inhibitor in combination with a PD one inhibitor. The data that I'm presenting makes it slightly complicated, so I guess you're going to introduce yourself then maybe you have to ask me questions. <laughs> but we'll just see how we go. We'll
1: just see how we go. So,
0: Jonathan, why don't you fire away, and then I'll dive in. If you've got any major conflicts of interest in this area, you should probably do. Just let us know.
1: Yeah. So, thank you. I'm Jonathan Rosenberg. I'm the I'm a medical oncologist focusing on urothelial cancer at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, um, and I'm the chief of uh, genitourinary oncology there. I've um, Consulted for multiple companies that are involved in FGFR inhibitor development, um, and um, have led a study very similar to what Tom is going to talk about, um, using a different agent, Rogaratinib, um, uh, as opposed to erdafitinib, which is uh, um, what he'll be, uh, what we'll be talking about primarily today. And Jonathan,
0: you combine with with a TEZO, Is that correct?
1: Correct. So that was a phase three, um, two study looking at atezolizumab and rogaratinib um, in cisplatin-ineligible patients um, using a different biomarker strategy. So um is generally employed in patients with mutations or fusions, whereas rogaratinib was being developed in patients with uh, overexpression by mRNA uh, detection um, as opposed to mutation. And that captured almost all the mutation uh, patients, but did not... Uh, um, but also included patients who had high levels of overexpression, um, which was thought perhaps to be driving um, the benefit in a larger group of people to target um, FGFR pathways. Um, so Jonathan, that study was a tezo.
0: You had about 25. This is really annoying because you completely stole my thunder. But I'm gonna keep <laughs> going to keep going anyway. I love you it. had about 25 patients and you had a response rate of 58%. You yep. just want to talk a little bit about the immune infiltration in that study. Um and, and whether or not you feel that individuals with FGF and we're talking about FGF two and FGF three, is that correct? With your with 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 your study? How did you pick your patients?
1: Yeah, so this was um this was actually uh just FGFR three gene um, expression and, and one, uh, but mostly three, um essentially. FGFR one and three overexpression in that trial. Um and but functionally, it was almost all FGFR3 because that is the um, you know, that's the prim- primary um, FGFR3 overexpression modality or FGFR overexpression modality in bladder cancer.
0: And Jonathan, the relationship between FGF and immune parameters in your study,
1: yeah, they you know, there's not a lot of data that was actually garnered in that trial yet. Um, and um, you know, what they what was interesting in that trial, I think, was. Uh, the, the anti-correlation with response with um, with PI3 kinase pathway mutations in bladder cancer, which are fairly prevalent. So, um, you know, if you had one of those alterations, you were much, you seemed to be much less likely to respond.
0: We did a study called Biscay. In Biscay, we, um, we enrolled patients who whose cancer had progressed after platinum-based chemotherapy, and they had, using foundation analysis, an FGF 2 or 3 alteration, we showed response rates for single agent 4547, which is AstraZeneca's FGF inhibitor, of 30%, which actually is not unreasonable. Remember, it was 40% as a single agent. But um, we, uh, we then combined it with duvalimab, and we didn't show a bounce in response rate. Why do you think there's a discrepancy between what you showed in your trial, Jonathan, and then the no bounce in, uh, in Biscay? By the way, in the Biscay trial, the numbers were small again. It was about 20 in both arms. And in that study, we showed low pdl one expression and we showed a lack of immune infiltration in the patients with FGF alterations compared to the, <laughs> the remaining population.
1: Well, I think the big difference between the trials beyond the biomarker selection strategy was the, was the line of therapy on treated patients versus prior platinum. And I don't know how much that might have affected this or perhaps selected out different, different populations despite having the mutation. Um, but, you know, we know that as disease becomes more resistant in general, the response rates tend to go down. And I do wonder whether there's something, whether the tumor microenvironment was changed um, somewhere along the way. Um, uh, it's, it is an interesting discrepancy, um, but I suspect line of therapy and the type of patients who went in may have something to do with this. And,
2: and pretty small numbers, right? Tom, you said only 20 yeah. patients. In yeah, but it, was, that...
0: but it was, it was, you know, cause I'm, I'm going to present this NORS data right now, Brian, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do I'm it right now. i bated breath. Yeah. The, so uh, NORS is a randomized <laughs> phase two trial of erdafitinib or nib plus atrilamab, which is a PD1 inhibitor. Um, and this is for patients with metastatic or locally advanced urethelial cancer and FGFR alterations. And it's the interim results of the study. Essentially, um, we've combined the two drugs together uh, in, uh, and we've compared it in a one-to-one randomization versus erdofitinib alone in first-line metastatic urethelial cancer patients mm. who are ineligible for cisplatin-based therapy. Um, and have FGFR alterations. It was a planned interim analysis essentially. And we ended up with about 20 patients for safe or efficacy evaluation and 25 patients for safety evaluation in both arms. The characteristics of the patients were relatively well balanced. Most patients had FGFR mutations rather than fusions. And the response rate was 68% in the combination arm and 33% in the single agent arm. And that's, as I said before, about 20 patients in each arm. 21% response rate, oh, sorry, 21% CR rate. That's only four patients, but it's still 21% um, in the combination arm. And in the combination arm, 90% of patients got disease control. Um, so
2: progression of disease only in 10% of patients. So- so, Tom, do you think this is somehow me- me- <laughs> mechanistically <laughs> different than the other combos, or is it just small numbers and patient selection and the like? I mean, what's, what's different to account for these results?
0: Well, I think I think it's different from Biscay, but I don't think it's different from Jonathan's study, which is one of the reasons, well, well, on top of Jonathan knowing all about it, but it's one of the reasons I was really interested in his opinion on this, because um, I, you know, when when we started on this journey, we've shown that combining with chemotherapy, for example, hasn't proven to be spectacularly successful. And the Biscay trial tried four or five different combinations with targeted therapies, and none of them were particularly successful. And so when Jonathan's study came out, because you'd expect, you know, erdofitinib as a single agent, you'd probably expect somewhere between 30 and 40 percent response rates, in my opinion, in the frontline setting. So it's quite difficult to get in control of the disease, although we, this is a selected population because of FGF. And I actually think this sort of 68 percent is higher than the 30 percent we saw with a single agent. And so under those circumstances, I do seem to think that actually we've done now a randomized trial that shows some addition of the immune drug on top of the single-agent targeted drug. And, um, and Jonathan's study also at 58% response rate does seem quite high. The intriguing thing about this sort of figure is remember chemotherapy has got about a 45% response rate. And so it does seem higher than chemotherapy. And so if you were to compare yourself to chemotherapy, it would be reasonable to think that actually you'd have a higher response rate. And we know that responses with immune therapy are likely to be more durable than that we see with chemotherapy alone. The follow up of this trial doesn't give us that information, but the durable, uh, sorry, but the spider plot does show some durability of those responses. Not complete, but it's not a V shaped curve, which is oft- often the case of what we see with chemotherapy and indeed and with deficient- a of.
2: For- further is it is it fully accrued now or what's the plan no
0: this trial is going to be ongoing but the issue with this trial that's complicated is we've currently got 20 in each arm um, and we talk about the plan being for 45 in each arm to complete but the challenge with that is 45 patients in each arm is unlikely to get FDA or EMA, EMA approval so we'll be in a position where we have more robust data which is terrific but is it practice changing data and we don't know so do we need to launch a randomized phase three and that's the question which I think that needs to be answered.
1: I, mean, I think the data is is supportive enough um, based on these two phase two studies different drugs different biomarker selection strategies but um, 58 68 percent um, is not sort of what we'd expect and and you know it's in the range of what we've seen with EV and Pembro which is um, ignited a firestorm of excitement um, over that combination um, uh, so I actually feel like the strategy is probably worthwhile pursuing um, in the first line setting for these patients who can't get cisplatin. At this point,
2: question for both of you, because you've talked about different selection strategies for FGF. Is there an accepted standard? Is there one better than the other? Is one more practical if this does, say, move forward and get, a, you know. Get I'm used confident mine's better than Jonathan's, for <laughs> <laughs>
1: I highly doubt that, but yeah.
0: Jonathan, what do you think?
1: Well, you know, I think that the mutation um, status is clearly more accepted as a way of testing for FGFR3 activation. Um, but I do, I do think there's some merit to the overexpression idea um, because um, because there's there are tumors that are probably addicted to FGFR without. Um, you know, without mutations. There are are transcriptional upregulation that leads to constitutive signaling in some of these tumors. Um, And the results in in using the different biomarker strategy actually allow you to treat a lot more patients than if you're looking for mutations alone, Um, right? The mutation frequency is what, 20% at best, maybe a little higher. Um, Whereas if you're looking at overexpression... Based on um, RNA scope, which is the biomarker that was used with the Roche you're looking at forty percent of patients. Um, so you may be doubling that. Um, and if you think they derive similar benefit, but you can't detect them with mutation, then you're missing a group of patients who might benefit from the from this uh, from this approach. So, so I don't know that it's better, it's, but it casts a wider net.
0: Jonathan, uh, in Biscay, we did uh, we looked at. Using um, GARDEN, we looked at circulating uh, uh, Mm CTDNA, we looked Mm -hmm. at circulating FGF alterations, FGFR alterations, which had a really strong correlation between tumor and circulating. I think that's point number one. And then point number two is we also showed uh, RNA analysis correlating with um, mutation expression. My inclination at the moment is that if this program is going to be successful we probably ought to think about moving towards a circulating type
1: biomarker
0: what's your feeling on that
1: I, you know we're seeing um, in some preliminary data um, that the frequency of fgfr alterations in ctdna seems to be higher than what we might expect and whether or not these are subclonal alterations that aren't drivers for the majority of disease um, has me somewhat concerned um, but I think it's a very useful biomarker to identify patients. But um, remember that all the trial, almost all the trials that have been done with this have been looking at the tumor DNA, and we really um, need to look at uh, ctDNA in the same manner because it's really a different biomarker.
0: The adverse event profile, grade three or four adverse events with monotherapy was 38% and with the combination was 50%. Um, the commonest adverse events hyperphosphatemia stomatitis diarrhea um nail abnormalities dry mouth uh, what 's your feeling on the safety profile of the single agent and the combination compared to chemotherapy? Can patients stay on these drugs for months and months on end
1: um <laughs> i have i've found um the f g f r inhibitors much um uh, much more toxic than um, I might have expected, but it's not the kind of toxicity that gets you in the hospital. Um, It's the kind of toxicity that just makes you kind of miserable. Um, And for patients, that's a real issue. Um, So um, I think they all have issues. um, These are non-selective FGFR inhibitors. I think the next generation of FGFR, um, our inhibitors that are FGFR3 selective might have certain advantages um, if, they, if they can be developed and actually have safe pharmacologic profiles and, and might be a better tolerated drug. But, you know, patients don't like their fingernails falling off. They don't like stomatitis. Um, and these are often hard things to manage. Um, but, they're, but I think the safety from a um, overall toxicity profile of the single agent drug in terms of the things we associate with Chemotherapy and other and other oncologic therapies is actually good, but I don't know that patient quality of life is as good as we'd like it to be. I have a I have a big
2: picture philosophical question. So we talked about mm-hmm. chemotherapy free regimens, you know, FGFIO or to fit in a bio. Um, do you think in three to five years when we're doing this, that 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 a, any chemotherapy free regimen will be will be in use in the front line for metastatic urothelial cancer, and and parenthetically you know, when IO first came in, it it was like, well, we can just use IO up front. And then we sort of found out that, yeah, chemotherapy is important and maintenance is probably better. So where do you think we're headed
1: in that regard? I think we need something that is cytotoxic in the first line setting. And whether it's traditional chemotherapy or an antibody drug conjugate, or even an FGFR inhibitor, um, as these are cytotoxic for for those patients who are sensitive, um, those drugs I don't think are going to be missing from the first line setting. Um, it isn't necessarily going to be platinum based chemotherapy, um, but I do think that this is a rapidly progressive disease for many patients. And without something that can start reduce people, um, you're not going to you're going to continue to see failures in the first line setting. Tom, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I and mean, I think if chemotherapy was invented tomorrow and Larry Ihorn who gave our podcast was in his late 20s or early 30s and invented cisplatin tomorrow. I think there'd be a lot of excitement in urethelial cancer right now about getting that initial control. There's no doubt, Jonathan, that you're absolutely right. Getting that initial control is very important because when you, you don't get two good goes at epithelial cancer, in my experience, the best way to do it is to get the frontline therapy right and chemotherapy is really good at getting that control. Now, EV plus Pembro may be a little bit better than that, but I suspect if patients were to progress or their cancers were to progress on that, I suspect from their chemotherapy will have a role subsequent to that. Um, I think the disappointment is that we haven't been able to combine
2: chemotherapy successfully with therapy. I was going to ask, is the cytotoxic agent, can, it, can these agents replace chemo or, or would chemo still have a role? I mean, are we sort of moving towards triplets in the front line like we are in RCC?
1: Or is that just going to be too toxic? I don't think we're going to see triplets with novel agents and chemotherapy in the first line setting at the moment. I wonder whether we've got the wrong chemo backbone, um, but I don't know that. I agree with that. A second uh, bite at the apple here um, to try to figure that out on a large scale. Um, And so, um, you know, I don't know that there's anything inherently different about um, bladder cancer than lung cancer. Um, in many ways and, you know, except the fact that they're using pemetrexed and carboplatin while we picked cytobine and cisplatin as the backbone of our chemotherapies. So um, it may be that we're damaging the tumor immune microenvironment um, with the cytotoxics. um, And and so I'm not, I'm cautiously optimistic that there may be a way to do that, but I don't know that we're going to get there um, given the current landscape.
0: I mean, Brian, my feeling on this combination is that it's relatively relatively easy to give, not without toxicity, as exactly as, as as Jonathan has said. But what I have noticed is it's really good at getting control of disease. And so it feels a bit like, you know, when you start, and, and you both will know this, when you start immune therapy and the urothelial cancer in some patients, by when it's by itself, some patients just grow and there's not much you can do about it. You can't really predict who they're going to be. And sometimes it goes wrong when you give. Um, this combination, erda and citrilamab, you know, almost all patients, you get quite good control of disease. And so it feels a bit like chemotherapy and you kind of, you, you feel reassured. I feel more reassured by this. And, and I think this would beat gemcarbo um, up front. That doesn't mean Carbo wouldn't have a role to play potentially in the future, as I'm sure EV would have a role to play, plus or minus SG and other combinations. But, you know, my feeling is that this combination is active in urethelial cancer. We don't have that many combinations or active drugs in urethelial cancer. So I think it would be disappointing if we didn't continue to pursue this because either it's not common enough from a biomarker perspective or we're not confident enough to be able to complete a randomized trial. Remember, these trials have been running for some period of time and we've only got 40 patients in each arm. And so we have to take part. We have to recruit patients into these trials because otherwise we might end up letting this target go completely.
2: So, Tom, I was going to ask. I mean, if, if EV Pembro, you know, leapt to a phase three, why not? Why not this combination? Let's put accrual aside. I know it's important, but you know, it has similar response rates. It's chemotherapy free. Yeah. Seems to be well tolerated, etc.
0: Yeah, and you go against all comers. I wouldn't confine myself to the cis the carboplatin population. I, I don't think that distinction has been particularly helpful. It looks like immune therapy is more active in the cisplatin eligible than the cisplatin ineligible population, as you'd expect. The problem with the carboplatin population is many of these patients have got aggressive disease, performance status of two because of the disease and liver and bone metastasis. And nothing works very well on that population. The cisplatin eligible population, you know, the, lung, the young man or woman aged 45 with a few lymph nodes relapsed after a cystectomy, that patient does better with immune therapy than the carboplatin patient with liver and bone metastasis. So this carboplatin distinction has been really unhelpful for
2: drug development in urethelial cancer. We need to move away from it. So so where does this go next, Tom? Then I guess finishing accrual, right? 20 more patients. You said it's at the 20, 20-ish mark going to 45, but then what after that?
0: I think it's a difficult decision needs to be made about whether we launch a, a rival randomized phase three study. And then the decision needs to be, is that a neoadjuvant study? Is it an adjuvant trial? Or is it a frontline metastatic trial? I don't know what you think, Jonathan.
1: Um, I think moving into the perioperative space is a lot more complicated. um, And I would probably favor the metastatic setting at this point. Um, The other issue with accrual to an FGFR um, inhibitor trial is the fact that you're only you're only really able to accrue 20% of patients if you're pursuing a mutation strategy. And so these are um, more challenging studies, uh, unfortunately, just based on the biomarker selection. However, um, they're doable and they need to be done. Um, And I agree that, uh, you know, I wouldn't stray too far from the data you have, and I would probably do a first-line trial if this was my decision to make um, comparing to chemotherapy. And I agree I'd be agnostic as to platinum eligibility um and we really need to we need to take these concepts forward whether it's um or one of the newer agents um or you know heaven forbid regoratinib <laughs> whatever get res- <laughs> get resurrected um I think these, are, <laughs> these are these uh, are these are active drugs in the disease and um and the combinations well i don't think we've proven that fgfr um, is causative for the sort of immune desert phenotype. I do think the clinical data is so compelling um, that we really, um, are, it's incumbent upon us to, to really push these trials forward.
0: Jonathan, this has been fantastic. Brian, any questions?
1: No, Anything
2: else? was there anything else FGF-wise at ESMO? Any other complimentary data? Or was this sort of the standout for FGF?
0: I think this is it at the moment, Brian.
2: Congratulations, Tom. <laughs> Great work, <laughs> Jonathan. Thank you for joining a a us. Big a uh, big pleasure. group of people
0: involved.
1: My <laughs> pleasure. See you soon. All right. Take care, Take care all. guys. Bye.